0: Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, here with none other than Kale Brooks. Kale, uh, A, how are you? B, what's on the docket today?
1: Hey, what's up? Uh, A, great. I'm feeling great. Uh, A1, how are you? Um, how are you? How are you doing?
0: Uh, A1, (laughs) good as always, can't complain.
1: Okay, perfect. B, um, I don't know where this is coming from. Anyway, B, uh, we have a great show. Uh, we're going to, in just a moment, we're going to switch over to Roy Chasera, who is a, um, surprise, surprise, a Democratic Party strategist. Uh, and he's an interesting guy. Uh, we don't agree with everything he says, but um, if, If that's all the show was, um, I don't know why you're listening. We give you a very diverse set of opinions here, and we like to get to the truth. Um, But he actually has a very interesting perspective that we kind of go back and forth on for a moment, um, dealing with... Uh, the midterms, dealing with demographic destiny and uh, and kind of cultural politics, cultural versus bread and butter, wokeness. We so all of that we got you covered as usual. Um, and then all of
0: your fave topics.
1: Yeah, well at least it's ours. We hope it's yours. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and then we have a, a really great panel discussion with three of our friends, three of also not just friends but three of maybe the best uh, kind of political commentators on the left uh, on Brazil. Um, obviously the Brazilian election is, uh, ongoing right now. We're between the first and second rounds. And so we have Alex Horkily, uh, Ben Fogel and Sabrina Fernandez to break down everything around the election. it's honestly we already recorded it, but it's honestly a great conversation. It's everything you would want to know. Um, and so much more. So, uh, hopefully that's enough of a pitch for you to stick around.
0: Definitely, definitely stick around for both of those. Uh, But, Kale, before we dive into the show proper, I wanted to talk to you about uh, death and dying and despair and mortality.
1: Again, usual, just typical. Yeah, just
0: just, just covering all of our favorite bases. Um, No, so there was an article that recently came out in the New York Times that looked at a couple different studies, all of which show that... um, Basically, white people without a college degree are getting screwed. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so the study that this article led with was uh, a study that came out earlier this year by the researchers Anne Case and Angus Deaton. Uh, mm-hmm. If their names sound familiar, it's because they're the researchers who coined the term "deaths of despair" a few mm-hmm. years ago and have been kind of on that beat since then. And what their study found is that overall, red states are now less healthy than blue states, which is kind of a reversal of what used to be the case, and the or at least one one major driving factor behind this is that health and life expectancy for whites without a college degree in those states, as I was saying, is declining. Mm-hmm. So I want to read a quote from one of the researchers, Ann Case. She writes, education divides everything, including connection to the labor market, marriage, connection to connection to institutions like organized religion, physical and mental health and mortality. It does so for whites, blacks and hispanics. There has been a profound, not yet complete, convergence in life expectancy by education. There are two Americas now, one with a BA and one without. Mm-hmm. And I I feel like I should say quickly here that um I think, you know, in in this case education is really just a proxy for class and mm-hmm. uh maybe to to a lesser extent occupation. Um, um and and I have some thoughts specifically about, you know uh what it means that life expectancy for uh, white workers without a college degree is dropping and and what we on the left should make of that fact and and what we should do about it strategically. Uh, but first, kale, uh let me let me hand it over to you for your for your two cents.
1: yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, it's just a confirmation of something that, you know, Something Jacobin has uh, tried to emphasize, and I think people serious on the left have understood for a very long time, which just is the fact that in capitalism, the society we live in, the number one cleavage is class. Like mm-hmm. that, That is the thing that like most significantly divides people up, um, and that determines their chances in life, what they have to do, it, it sets up the choices they have to make on a daily basis. Um, and, like you're saying, yeah, education typically does kind of service the proxy insofar as some of that just has to do with the fact that like polling and data collection is kind of insufficiently attuned to to class care uh right. categories but um there there is like and even right now, there's kind of an odd shift happening right now where many people with college degrees are. Uh, in working class occupations with working class living standards, obviously, mm-hmm. um, teachers come to mind. But there's plenty of other people who work in uh, uh, what we would understand as working class jobs with a with a degree. That being said, um, it's nevertheless totally the case that that education is one of these defining markers of those with a certain lifestyle that you would call working class, and those that have something more middle class or professional or managerial or whatever in that more kind of that strata of society um and i think the left does an insufficient job of kind of parsing out like the actual class and economic categories from the political ones and Mm so um it's of course true that like one of the main reasons why these red states uh that do have more you know white workers white people in general whatever um, that they are they have worse uh, outcomes like social outcomes uh, but also the people in those states as part of the study that also have like lower expectations for you know life getting better um, mm-hmm, of kind of right. th- their their anticipation for something in the future is uh, is more and more bleak than mm-hmm. you know people in blue states um, yeah. and obviously a lot of that has to do just with like the, you know, the policies in those states, like the actual like social infrastructure and or the lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we on the left can't just stay in the world of politics and say, well, you know, these are people who want bad things. They, you know, they have bad opinions, bad culture, bad attitudes, bad um, Worldviews and they they want to hurt others. They want you know they want to strip away that social infrastructure because overwhelmingly that's not true. When you actually mm-hmm. get to know these people, mm-hmm. um, that for the most part most people, working people, poor people, are good and rational. They care about others. They want good outcomes for other people in their lives. They maybe even want good outcomes for people they don't know, but they certainly you know are looking to protect the ones they care about. And those are all totally good positive impulses that people have if the problem is that they live in a deranged like falling apart society where like you know the option that seems the most credible is the politicians that say you know we're going to protect those like limited things you have as opposed to you know the other party which is you know the democrats saying um you know basically uh, they've been the party of NAFTA, of international trade, of, right. you know, of of corporate finance, of pharma, of, of you know, Silicon Valley, of that um, the actual presentation of politics is that we really don't care about you guys. You're the losers in life and we're mm-hmm. here for the middle class winners.
0: Right. Um, yeah. I think that uh, that I agree with all of that, of course. And I, I, I want to say that I think or part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this uh, New York Times article and by extension these studies is I think that they have – some interesting implications for like the way that we talk and think about race, not Mm -hmm. just of white workers, but like of black people, of black workers as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, to kind of underscore that, uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton have a prior study where, again, they looked at rates of mortality between people of different races with different, uh, degrees of education, which again, uh, they're kind of using as a proxy for class. And what they found was that prior to the year 2000, Black people with a college degree and black people without a college degree looked more similar to each other uh, uh, in terms of life expectancy than, mm-hmm. than they did to whites, right? And white people with a college degree and white people without a college degree looked more similar to each other with regard to mortality and life expectancy. Than than they did to blacks, so that's to right. say that you know prior to the year 2000, there appeared to be more of a discrepancy between white people as a group and black people as a group when mm-hmm. it comes to things like mortality and life ex- and, and life expectancy. I'm sorry, I'm saying the same words over and over, but anyway. So yeah. moving forward, what they found is that after the year 2000, that's not true anymore, and it's particularly not true after you know tw- 2008 2010, which of course we know is the Great Recession. Right. And so to that that was a little bit of a mouthful, but to kind of summarize what I'm trying to say, or like what this study uh, seems to demonstrate is that now, you know, there's much more of a discrepancy in terms of life expectancy within race than there is between races. Mm -hmm. So that's all to say that like, you know, it doesn't make sense to talk about like black mortality versus white mortality at this point. Rather, again, as this study and many other studies point out, the main sort of cleavage is class. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, that it's it's something that, again, the left and socialists used to understand that, like, insofar as like they understood, they had like a mapping of society um, of like what is kind of the determining factors. Um, and insofar as like you're saying, you know, maybe several decades earlier, um, there, you could have made this more kind of like. Uh, racial mapping make mm-hmm. more sense mm-hmm. and even then of course like doesn't really change any kind of left politics or mm-hmm. shouldn't have it did unfortunately historically but it shouldn't have um, that you know people you know we, we still should have been dealing with universal uh, rights and privileges and um, material you know material d- redistribution of um, both of like economic resources but also of power like none of that should have been altered and it was But it's even more the case now that, Mm -hmm. like, society is reflecting, like, how we kind of have understood capitalism for the longest time in, like, the most vulgar sense. It's becoming more vulgar, Mm -hmm. where it really just is, if you're poor, you're poor, regardless of what you look like, what your skin color is, your gender, whatever. You know, if you're on minimum wage, uh, there is no gender pay gap. There is no racial uh, pay gap. Like... You know, that, oh,
0: yay.
1: <laughs> right. Well, that's like that's where it's like most of these, like, this, the disparity stuff mostly still just is, like, among middle class people. Um, and that's in part why working class people resent this stuff um, and mm-hmm. think it's, like, demeaning. Because yeah. it's basically, like, you don't actually have any idea what we're dealing with. Um, and to the... Well, just the last point is that the left, like is also behind the curve on all of this that like the left like insofar as it buys into these kind of more middle-class liberal distinctions of like mapping society and they write off white people white working-class people um it's a massive major mistake because um you know white people white workers are just as important and valuable as black workers are just as valuable and important as hispanic workers or asian workers whatever that we as socialists say The working class is the is the actual like social um, agent that can actually lead to a better world that like actually get like realizing their interests of their values. their um, actually like providing material security in a universal way to their benefit actually creates a world that is to every single person's benefit. Right
0: and i mean in addition to you know the kind of moral case which is nothing to sneeze at there's also a strategic case uh white there are still a lot of white people in the us uh most people are white uh i know that that sometimes is uh, a you know, may feel like a surprise or whatever, but, uh, th- uh you know, we don't believe in demographic destiny. We're going to get into that with Rui Teixeira, but, you know, uh, th- there are many reasons why we can't just wait for white people to disappear. A, uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. B, even if that did happen as Rui gets into later, uh, that is not a recipe for success. Yeah. Uh, and finally, I just want to say, you know, on this point, uh, I, I think, We've talked about this before on the show, but I think that, you know, the kind of impulse, especially from a lot of progressives to frame uh, what could otherwise be sort of universal bread and butter concerns as, quote, racial justice issues. Always is going to have diminishing returns because right. of what we just talked about. So by that, I mean, you know, lots of people wanted to make student debt relief a racial justice issue or frame it that way. Uh, lots of people, you know, want to talk about the minimum wage as a quote, racial justice issue. And I again, like, I, I suppose part of me sort of understands that like that. That is an attempt to convey a kind of moral urgency, but Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, like I said, it it will have diminishing returns uh, just because of the way that, you know, class operates in the U.S. right now.
1: Yeah, true. It's I think that's totally true. But and I think I think we can make the stronger claim that it's also morally insufficient, that the privileging of a fake category of people like a race. Is completely wrong that like the socialist project, the reason why like the the better account of like the racial justice argument is, of course, like it's to eliminate racial inequities because we actually want to move the floor up for everyone that we want universal uh, guarantees of life regardless like, that we make, uh, you know, that it's not um, basically that our politics is the elimination of racial distinction. Right and like that's not and we say that not because like we are really into class like the point is that like we think Oh, are cl- you not into class? <laughs> no, I mean that, it's it's the worst fucking thing in life. That's the yeah, whole point. E- exactly.
2: Like, yeah. <laughs> so it's like
1: <laughs> you get rid of the racial distinctions and you get rid of the classes like and you have a society where everyone's needs are met appropriately and people treat each other as genuine equals. Like that's the ambition. And insofar as the left isn't doing that and is reifying these categories, is making like, you know, racial distinctions more real, you're completely undermining your project. Sorry. Sorry, left. Got to get on it. Got, let's, what are we waiting for?
0: <laughs> well, Cale, uh, on that on that uh, cheery and optimistic note, as always, uh, should 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 we get into the bulk of today's show?
1: Yeah, let's
2: do it.
0: All right, so I am now joined by Rui Teixeira. He is a longtime Democratic strategist, the co-editor of the newsletter, The Liberal Patriot, and the author of several books, including his most recent, which is titled The Optimistic Leftist. Rui, great to have you on.
3: Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Always good to have a chance to chat with some of my comrades on the left.
0: Yep. (laughs) Well, I actually wanted to start with that because, you know, I think... On paper, in some ways, you're actually not the typical Jacobin guest, right? Uh, you co-edit a newsletter called The Liberal Patriot, which I just mentioned. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, as of this year, most interestingly, you are also a fellow at the well-known conservative think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, now all that said, uh, of mm-hmm. course, the reason why I wanted to speak to you today is because quite a lot of your ongoing research and commentary, uh, really dovetails with a lot of what we look at at Jacobin, and specifically a study that Jacobin and the Center for Working Class Politics put out last year, uh, which you generously covered in your newsletter, uh, mm-hmm. that that looks at the problem of the Democratic Party bleeding working class voters uh, is the mm-hmm. is the simplest way to put it, and that's been a focus of your research uh, uh, very recently as well. Um, so I guess on that subject, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the the study that Jacobin and CWCP put out sort of offered some ways of moving past this hurdle or of kind of reversing this trend of the Democratic Party bleeding working class voters. Uh, now, now I wanted to turn that question over to you. What do you mm-hmm. think the Democrats need to do both in the short term and the long term to stop and even reverse this trend?
3: Well, that's what they call a pretty big question.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, yes. Starting I lo- small. I love-
3: I love the study that Jared and Dustin did. It's really an excellent study. And it actually touches on, you were mentioning, you know, why that I moved over to the American Enterprise Institute. Why did I? Well, one reason has to do with class. That, you know, the the piece, the study that Jared and Dustin did, and that you folks emphasize a lot of Jacobin, which is very important, is a fundamental political reality, economic reality driver of class. And that, you know, an enormous swath of the left has become completely, their brains have been taken over by various forms of identity politics around race, gender, and even weirder stuff that we need not detain us. So, so that's pretty bad, I think. The left has always stood for improving a lot of working class people, being primarily oriented toward advocating for them and trying to raise up the working class as a whole to a much better. Uh, position in society, both economically and in terms of political power. So I think it's a real tragedy when the left gets away from class and becomes preoccupied with a lot of other stuff that winds up basically dividing ordinary voters from each other. I mean this is really this is really kind of bad. And I so I went over to AEI because to be honest, you can't talk about class very much in a lot of left institutional circles these days unless you're willing to check the appropriate boxes on race, gender, trans stuff, and everything else, um, if you really want to interrogate the Democrats' positions on crime and immigration and things like that, and you know, sort of what's being taught in the schools, that's not really allowed. I mean, or you can't really have a, a civil discussion about it. You, you basically might you know, say, well, I wonder if this is a really good idea, but that's about as far as you'll get. Um, you can't have an honest conversation. So what I like about AEI is it's a real think tank, People disagree about all kinds of things. Obviously, they're center-right. They know I'm center-left. They know I'm a Democrat. They know I have a long history on the left. And they couldn't care less. You know, I can say what I want, and I can disagree with them as I like. And that's a beautiful thing. I think there should be more of that uh, on the left because, I mean, this is another conversation in a way, but I feel like uh, the most interesting thinking going on in American politics today is in some ways on the heterodox center-right. I think there's some good stuff in Jacobin and Catalyst, but as a body, I think actually the heterodox center-right, it's been pretty interesting. An enormous proportion of the stuff put out by the the official left is really just garbage. I mean, it's just not interesting. It's just boring advocacy propaganda stuff. Uh And, you know, I think it's to Jacobin's credit. They do a lot better than that a good chunk of the time. Um, But uh so... That's why I moved over to AEI and, you know, how did the Democrats get out of this box, which is what you were saying, well, mm-hmm. are asking about now, as it turns out, I've just released a, you know, epic three part series on my sub stack trying to, in essence, you know, sort of intervene in the Democratic debate and say, look, <laughs> you're bleeding working class voters, you're uncompetitive in small town rural and exurban America You know, the white working class has been disappearing for quite a while. Now the Hispanic working class are going in the same direction. You cannot win given the structure of the American electoral system, given those weaknesses. So you need to do things different. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I had a three-part plan. One is very simple. Uh, Democrats must move to the center on cultural issues. Two, Democrats must pursue an abundance agenda. And three, Democrats should embrace patriotism and liberal nationalism. So all of those things have a lot more attached to them, but that's my basic concept is that if mm-hmm. you're going to reach the median voter, the median working class voter, you have to very much change your tune and get away from the obsession with identity politics, the, you know, unwillingness to really talk about class, the obsession in some ways, I think, with, with sort of a climate change agenda that has, you know, not that much appeal for working class voters, at least mm-hmm. as it's been currently uh, promulgated and pushed on them. Uh, Democrats, you know, the, uh, the third point, you know, they just don't seem very patriotic. They don't seem like they like America. Well, guess what? Most people in America like America, including working class voters. So if you want to reach these voters, they have to be very sure that, you know, you're kind of the kind of person, the kind of political party they can relate to. That's not alien to them. That's not looking down on them. And that shares a lot of their common core values. And I think the Democrats have done a terrible job with that. In the last period of time, and that was part of what uh, the study you mentioned got at' yeah. is that they found that if you do more class oriented framings universal uplift framings as opposed to you know the standard language of of identity of you know racial racial framing whatever that that you know you basically do better yeah. I mean people are more inclined to take your message seriously so it seems to me that's pretty obvious mm-hmm. I mean common sense would tell you that, but it's nice we have studies that show it as well uh and I think uh, my view is Democrats really need to get on a, on a different path that they want to mm-hmm. be effective if they want to stop that working class bleeding.
0: Yeah. Uh so I definitely want to unpack all of the three points that you brought up, uh especially mm-hmm. the stuff on kind of moving to the center on cultural issues, uh, because mm-hmm. I think that's where, you know, you and Jacobin and the Center for Working Class Politics probably disagree the most. So we'll get into okay. that next. Uh, but first I want to kind of uh I, I want to ask you about uh Hispanic voters in particular, mm-hmm. because that's uh, you know, obviously that is a focus of your research. You've been writing a lot about that, and that's a very interesting. Case study, I think, of seeing a working class shift kind of happening in real time, right? So, uh, so, so, let's talk about Hispanic voters. Uh, I think you know, recently there has been a lot of attention on Hispanic voters kind of moving away from the Democratic Party, if not moving completely to the Republicans. Obviously, mm-hmm. Hispanic voters still, you know, the majority still vote for Democrats in elections, but there has been a significant uh, shift. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard a lot of commentary about this to to the effect of. Well, we can explain this that because Hispanics are culturally conservative or, you know, some commentators will even say, like, Hispanics are increasingly embracing whiteness or white supremacy or whatever. And, you know, I, I, I have my criticisms of that. Uh, now the, the cultural conservatism, uh, you know, like I said, we can get into that next. But I think what's interesting about Hispanics is that, uh, in 2020, particularly Hispanic voters in California, voted by huge margins for Bernie Sanders. So I just don't mm-hmm. think that, you know, to say that they're conservative or they're kind of like a natural constituency for the Republican Party really cuts it. There's clearly something else going on here if, you know, this supposed conservative bloc is going to vote for the leftmost Jewish socialist candidate in the Democratic primary. Uh, so, so maybe help us, like, unpack this a little bit. What is going on with Hispanic voters?
3: Okay, well... Uh- the example of the Sanders vote in California among Hispanics, I mean, we're talking about Democratic primary voters. So this yeah. is not you know your average pool of Hispanic voters. Uh, it maybe does show you that Hispanic Democrats respond to things, I think, a little bit differently than other Democrats, particularly the ones who vote in primaries. And that's an interesting data point. But if you look at the Hispanic voter population as a whole, the point is really not and that's, I think, is sometimes misunderstood, not that they're exceptionally conservative, right? I mean, uh, but they do have an ideological distribution and this does not particularly skew liberal. In fact, mm-hmm. it skews a little bit away from liberals. There's a ton of moderates and there's a big chunk of conservatives. And now what was weird about Hispanic conservatives until recently, and this is what made them such a powerful block for the Democrats, is Hispanic conservatives were not voting their ideology. They were voting way above what sort of white conservative working class voters would do. You look at a Hispanic conservative working class voter, and their vote was much more heavily Democratic than you think it should be on the base of their underlying ideology and some of their views on issues. Because for them, Democrats were the default option. The party that was best represented, you know, was reasonably friendly to immigrants and, and represented an economic program and approach that they, they found somewhat appealing. Um, But what's happened over the last period of time, and this is really a lot what drove the 2020 election results, is that Hispanics who are conservative ideologically and also some moderates increasingly are voting sort of more in line with their underlying ideology. In other words, the permission structure has evolved for these voters to say, well, I don't really like where the Democrats are coming from. They're way too liberal and X, Y and Z. This culture war stuff is is insane. You know, I'm mostly interested in upward mobility, my family, my my job, you know, public safety, effective schools. And the Democrats just seem, you know, off the reservation, my reservation on a lot of this stuff. So I'm really going to give the Republicans a chance to make their case to me. Mm-hmm. And so they're listening to Republicans and increasingly, and of course, the ones who are going to listen most carefully and follow their, their ideas are going to be conservative Hispanics. So, that's what the story is not that hispanics globally are this you know super conservative population but rather there's the conservatives within the hispanic population are now moving clearly toward the republicans and i think we're seeing this among some moderates as well i mean liberal Mm -hmm. hispanics are still going to vote very very democratic but they are you know pretty small minority i think in the pew uh, validated voter post-election study it was like only a fifth of Hispanic voters describe themselves as liberal. So yeah, fine, they're still voting Democratic faithfully, but what about, what about the rest of them? That's right. the problem. Mm-hmm. So I think Democrats have made themselves unattractive to uh, many of these Hispanic voters, some more modern, especially conservative. And you know, to tie it into your thing about Bernie Sanders, maybe part of the problem is uh, maybe this is some indicator of what Hispanics really want to hear about, Hispanic voters, even if they're liberal, but certainly down through the ideological ranks is what are Democrats going to do to help me? You know, right. uh, what? How are they going to uh, sort of allow me more upward mobility? How are they mm-hmm. going to provide better services? How are they going to sort of do something about the rampant inequality in the country and the crappy job I have and you know healthcare stuff? Uh, you know, and to the extent Democrats talk a lot about other stuff. That's less stuff they talk that's concerned with class. I mean, this is one of my little hobby horses. I mean, Democrats don't realize there's big opportunity costs to spending a lot of your time talking about all this identity politics stuff. Even if people are, you know, sort of tune it out, that's time you're not talking about other stuff. Mm -hmm. So the people you're alienating clearly don't like it. The people who aren't paying attention, you're losing the opportunity to use that attention you know, what could have been their attention to talk about the stuff they really care about. So it's pretty common sense, right? You talk more about stuff people don't really care about. You talk less about the stuff they do care about. Hey, guess what? They're starting to move away from you. And they're not in any danger of becoming a pro-Republican group as a whole anytime soon. But, you know, when you go from, you know, a plus 35, plus 40 group to a plus 20, plus 25 group, you're losing a lot of margin points. And it's looking like we're seeing the trend continue, uh, according to most of the polling data, uh, you know, through this cycle as well. So mm-hmm. the Democrats did less well, much less well in 2020 than they did in 2016. And it looks like they'll probably do worse in 2022 than they did in 2020. So it's like, you know, drip, 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 drip as these mm-hmm. voters, you know, start moving away from the Democrats.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to pick up on that by way of sort of getting to the question of culture or cultural issues, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what you just alluded to, that we have all of these voters, particularly working class voters of all races mm-hmm. who prioritize what we call bread and butter issues, right? Uh, the economy, mm-hmm. jobs, health care, education, uh, you know, regardless of what their sort of feelings are on the cultural stuff, whether they're liberal on that or conservative on that, uh, I think, you know, the Center for Working Class Politics and your research and plenty of others research have showed that when, when these voters prioritize these issues, the bread and butter stuff still comes out on top, right? So like you were saying, nobody really wants to hear about the culture war stuff. So that kind of gets me into the, uh, point where I think maybe we have some sort of disagreement, which is that Uh-oh, you have said that. I know. No. Yeah. <laughs> Shock. <laughs> well, so you so you argued earlier that you think that Democrats should tack to the center on cultural issues. Um mm-hmm. I of course must say that you know Jacobin and the Center for Working Class Politics position isn't really that. It's sort mm-hmm. of more that the Democrats should be leading with economic bread and butter issues. I think we all agree on that. Uh and then I think at Jacobin we would say something like, you know, the Democrats definitely have to stop using this alienating, you know, activist rhetoric. We would agree on mm-hmm. that, and and like I said, have to lead with the economic issues. But that doesn't mean sacrificing our position on some of the cultural issues. So I, I wanted to, well, like, you know, what
3: position do you mean? What what position would we be sacrificing? I'm well, you center. brought up
0: you you brought up immigration. Uh, policing okay. reform, perhaps, uh, uh, abortion. That's the big one right now, of course. Uh, and, you know, you have argued in your newsletter that a strong economic populist platform, which is what we're advocating for, is not uh-huh. necessarily enough to kind of win back the working class voters that have been bleeding off. So so my question for you, then, is maybe a variation of yours, which is, for you, what would it mean to move to the center on some of these cultural issues?
3: Right. Well, I think that... Um the way to think about this is it's important to keep in mind that voters you know, have a variety of concerns and they have yeah. an underlying value structure and they will listen more or less closely to what you have to say, depending on whether they feel you really have a lot in common with them. You're on their side. Uh, you don't look down on them. You don't have alien values. So. Uh, I just don't think it's the case that turning up the volume on bread and butter issues and just not talking, uh, I guess, about any of these cultural issues, trying to avoid them is really going to be that effective. Because part of what gets you in the door with working class voters so they'll listen to your groovy policy ideas on bread and butter issues is a feeling like, You are talking to them person to person. You're a person who, who definitely gets, you know, gets it, who's on their side, who doesn't, you know, sort of believe in crazy stuff. I mean, you're someone who believes that you don't believe America is a, you know, benighted white supremacist society, this racist dystopian hellhole. You, you do embrace patriotism. You do think America is a great country. You don't think that, uh, you know, equality of outcome. Uh, is the same thing as equality of opportunity, but you're for equality of opportunity. There's a variety of, you look at immigration, most Hispanics aren't for open borders. Most right. Hispanics are for a significant amount of border security. The Democrats are way out of line on this. They're, they're terrified, like, like a deer caught in the headlights trying to do something about the surge of immigration at the border, which for Hispanic citizens who vote, and particularly the closer you get to the border, the more this is the case, is a big deal for them. They don't think, you know, basically anyone should be able to stroll across the border and become... You know just hang out in America and sort of you know go through this endless asylum process which winds winds up you know where they can kind of wander off into the country so it's not the case that these are immigration voters in that sense they are just like most Americans concerned with a fair humane immigration system that provides a very strong amount of border security and sort of has some sort of actual decision points actual enforcement mechanisms for deciding who's going to look at crime I mean Police reform is fine, but, we're, you know, Democrats have lost the plot here. What people really care about is being safe. And it's not enough to say, you know, we're not for defunding the police. We're for funding the police. You've also got to make it clear you're tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. In other words, you're going to put the criminals in jail. You're not just going to try to get guns off the street. You're going to actually put people in jail. And that's what people want to hear from the Democrats. And that's what they're not hearing from that. It doesn't do you any good to say, you know, oh, well, you know, these guns are so terrible. They're just everywhere. We've got to stop this trafficking guns. Well, you know, the guns don't fire themselves. And most common sense people know that know know that uh, for a fact, right? Especially people who live in crime-ridden neighborhoods. So if you want them to listen to you on a lot of issues like this, you've got to pass the common sense test that you get it. You understand what the real concerns are. You take those seriously, you're going to do stuff that addresses those concerns. I mean, look, when Mandela Barnes is running in Wisconsin on you know, getting rid of cash bail after the Waukesha incident where a guy plowed into a Christmas parade and killed six people who was out on like a tiny amount of bail. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like a really bad idea. And this Mm -hmm. doesn't play with black voters. It doesn't play with Hispanic voters. It doesn't play with any voters. And so Democrats, if they're going to reach not only Hispanic working class voters, but other working class voters, they've got to like decide that they are going to draw some lines within their own party about what makes sense and what doesn't make sense, that reassure voters that they are in their corner, they don't reject their values. In fact they embrace them and they're not for boutique cultural concerns that seem to, you know, wind up promoting policies that that are ineffective and don't make sense. So so uh, that's my kind of rambling rap about how you can't just get away with saying, you know, down with the billionaire class and, you know, mm-hmm. we're gonna we're going to have all these groovy programs for you that's going to make your life better. Trust us. We're Democrats. It's not enough. I mean, the Democrats do not have a presumption at this point among a lot of working class people that they are on their side and that are a working class party. To be honest, Jen, what increasingly what the Democrats look like, is there a party that represents people like you and me, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> college educated, you know, metropolitan people who have liberal views and a lot of issues. Uh, and those—that's the values that that party embraces and attempts to promulgate. So, until and unless Democrats can move fairly decisively away from that, I think they're going to have a hard time making their case on on their economic program. Even assuming their economic program is that great, which is yet another uh, discussion.
0: Interesting. Well, I mean, you know, you brought up Mandela Barnes. What would you make of mm-hmm. a candidate like John Fetterman, who you know, I think, uh, I think to some extent is kind of. Um, I don't know if he's doing exactly what you just recommended, uh, but, you know, we're watching him at Jacobin because he's sort of doing the thing of leading, at least trying to lead with the kind of economic bread and butter issues and sort of, I wouldn't say that he is ignoring cultural issues, uh, but he's an interesting example, as I would say, is Bernie Sanders because, you know, while they lead with these sort of economic issues, nobody questions that they're, for example, pro-choice, right? Uh, John Fetterman and Bernie Sanders don't support open borders, but at the same time, they're for more liberal immigration policy. So, I mean, they're, they're, it does seem like there's some kind of middle ground. I'm not sure what you think about that.
3: Well, I, I like Fetterman in a lot of ways. Too bad he had the stroke. I mean, that's definitely right. uh, causing him a lot of problems, but he's run a very clever campaign. I think he he understands a little bit about how to appeal to working class voters. He's willing to go to rural areas, small town areas, Pennsylvania to talk to people. Uh, He's notably refused to endorse banning fracking, which is like really good. I mean, in general, in my opinion, but certainly in Pennsylvania. Uh, So he's been somewhat realistic about about some of these issues and how to handle them. That said, I think, you know, a lot on a lot of other cultural issues, he's kind of a down the line liberal Democrat. Mm -hmm. Uh, and And he's, you know, to some extent, like any candidate in a purple state, he's hurt by the national brand of the Democratic Party. There's not a lot he can do about that. Right. Uh, but, you know, at least he's, he's doing some of the right things. I also like what Tim Ryan's doing in Ohio. I mean, he'll probably lose the election, but he's gonna, it's going to be a lot closer than it really should, given the nature of that state. And that's a lot because of the kind of campaign he's running on, where he's trying to soft-pedal these cultural issues. He's talk, trying to talk about what's really going on economically with the people in his state. He's not afraid to take on China. He's not afraid to disagree with his party on some important issues. Um, we need more of that. I mean, Democrats who run in states like this, should be, you know, should be going out of their way to criticize the National Democratic Party and dissociating themselves from its brand, because that's how they're going to, that's how they're going to win. Now, you know, easy for me to say that. I'm not a consultant. I'm not running any campaign. But I do think in the medium term, that is necessary. I mean, in some extent, our our, our conversation is necessarily constricted even our own minds by... We're looking down the barrel of election in November. The fact of the matter is most of what's going to happen in November is set. Nothing's going to change. There's not going to be big changes of party strategy. What's interesting is what's going to happen when they sift through the wreckage after November. And Mm -hmm. the party has to decide, well, okay, it didn't go as well as we thought. Um, You know, gosh, I mean, Trump could run in 2024, maybe DeSantis, And, you know, the Senate map is just awful. So what are we going to do? How are we going to be more competitive? And we'll see if we have some interesting conversations with them, uh, certainly about Hispanic voters, uh, but more broadly than that, I think about how Democrats can, can really change their approach to some important issues and speak more to voters where they live and not seem like such an alien force.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think I want to then wrap up on this question. Obviously, oh, this is the bonus talking, question. This is the bonus question. This is like
3: double jeopardy or something, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> rapid okay. fire right.
0: round. Um, okay. well, so obviously we've been talking a lot about class. That's kind of been the primary focus of this discussion. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about this idea mm-hmm. of demographic destiny. Uh, we criticize it a lot on the Jacobin show. Um, I think that it is often associated with the book that you wrote with John Dudas, which is called the Emer- emerging majority. Mm-hmm. And, um, Demographic Destiny, of course, is kind of this idea that as America gets browner and more diverse, it's going to sort of automatically become more Democrat because that's who votes for Democrats. Now, of course, you have argued uh, that this is sort of a mischaracterization of your book and, and what you guys were talking about there. So the question for you, the final yes. bonus question for you is how exactly should we think about demographic change in the U.S.?
3: Well, the way to think about demographic change in the U.S. is is kind of the way we we tried to convey to people in the book, which is that it shifts the underlying political terrain somewhat. Uh, and if you hold everything else constant, it can move it in you know, a pro-democratic or pro-Republican direction. Now, in the, when we were writing in 2002, it was clearly you know the changes that were taking place in terms of the, the rise of non-white populations, in terms of the growth of professionals, the growth of more cosmopolitan metropolitan areas, changes that were taking place within the you know, population of women voters, variety of things, they really were mostly, pretty much mostly in the Democrats' direction. If they played their cards right, and they practiced what we call progressive centrism, and were able to keep a very strong section of the white working class on their side, you know, the math worked out for them. So that's the right way to think about it. It's a factor, but it's not the determining factor. Mm -hmm. And it's not destiny. It's merely something that Potentially is in your favor that you can take advantage of and build a majority on if you play your cards right. And they did not play their cards right. Um, as we as became very apparent in the late part of the first decade of the century and then in the, you know, the teens, the Democrats were not able to maintain a reasonably large share of the white working class and it was killing them and are particularly killing them in a lot of white working class heavy states in the Midwest, but also in other places around the country. So no, demographics are not destiny, and they're not destiny today, particularly when you take into account back to our original, we were originally talking about, about Hispanic voters. So what's driving the growth of the non-white population, which is assumed to be basically a big point in the favor of Democrats? I mean, we can forget about, you know, what's happening with white voters, maybe even white working class voters, because every day and every way the country's getting browner. I mean, it's really about Hispanics. That's what's driving the growth. I mean, it's secondary agents, but really mostly Hispanics. So what happens if you get growth in the Hispanic voter population, but you get a strong trend against your party among that same group? And that's exactly what we're seeing now. The fact of the matter is mathematically that winds up canceling itself out. (laughs)
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: So you could have more Hispanics, and it won't do you any good whatsoever. In fact, if they move far enough against you or strongly enough against you, and this is really what happened in 2020, Hispanics wind up contributing less to your potential, you know, victory margin than they uh, they did in the previous election. And that's really an unappreciated fact about the 2020 election. Hispanics were actually a negative uh, force on the Democratic, uh, you know, electoral victory in 2020. What really gave the election to the Democrats is a white college-educated vote right. by far state after state, nationally. It's, it's easy to show. But people, you know, it's that, that's not why I think. What people meant by demographics as destiny. They more meant the browning of America. They'd mean the white, white college educating of America. But that's right. kind of where we are. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's never a good idea to uh, reduce any reasonably, you know, complicated argument, ours or anybody else's to like one thing. But unfortunately, that's what happened. And I I'm sad that happened, but you know what? You put these things out in the world and you don't got no control over what happens to them.
0: Well, you have issued a forceful correction here. So let's hope this video gets out.
3: Sure. that has been fun.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Roy. Uh, Again, Roy Teixeira is the co-editor of the excellent newsletter, The Liberal Patriot. We will link that down below. Thanks so much for your time.
3: Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so we will be back in a minute with our big Brazilian panel. Uh, But first, a quick note from our sponsors.
1: Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in October and get your first month free. This month's selections are... Monumental Lies, Culture Wars and the Truth About the Past by Robert Bevan, a look at how statues, heritage, and the built environment have become the battleground for the culture wars. Is Mother Dead, the new novel by Norwegian writer Vigdis Jörth, which follows the cat and mouse game of surveillance and psychological torment between a middle-aged artist and her aging mother. Radius, a story of feminist revolution by Yasmin Elverfey, a haunting intimate account of the women and men who built a feminist revolution in the middle of the Arab Spring and Power and Resistance, Foucault, Deleuze, Derrida, Althusser, by Yoshiyuki Sato: a provocative reinterpretation of the post-structuralist theory of power. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Zoned Out is a podcast that examines the capitalist city and attempts to imagine how the socialist city could replace it. Hosted by Rin, urban planner and person who has a last name but really values privacy, she does deep dives into various facets of urban geography, planning, and economics in this monthly podcast. You can listen to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more at zonedoutpodcast.neocities.org.
0: All right, so now we have our panel on the recent Brazilian election and what could be coming next in the second round. Here to talk about that with us is Alex Hokely from BungaCast. Ben Fogel, who is a contributing editor at Jacobin, and Sabrina Fernandez, also a contributing editor at Jacobin, and the host of her own great show on YouTube, Tezionzi. I will go ahead and hand it over to Alex.
4: All right. Hi, everyone. We're here to talk about the Brazilian election. And uh, the three of us here, myself, Alex, uh, Ben, and Sabrina, are going to try to unpick a little bit of what's happened in the first round, what's led up to it, and look forward to the second round, as well as discuss a little bit more towards the end the broader social and political backdrop of what's going on in Brazil today. So um, the first round headline, I guess, was Polls Underestimate Right-Wing Populist. But that's actually probably a bit of a cliched headline. Wherever you are watching or listening to this, you've probably seen a headline like that before. But at the same time, it was kind of true. Lula scored 48% in the first round, just falling short of a first round landslide, effectively winning out an absolute majority. So he fell just short. Bolsonaro finished with 43%. That's a 5% difference. But at the same time, that kind of surprised or upended what the polls were saying. Uh, Were we surprised on election night? I was. Uh, Sabrina, were you a little bit surprised at at the election results as they came in?
5: Yeah, we kind of expected that a first round win would be something very out of the ordinary. We had hope for it, but uh, we were sure that a second round could happen. Um, but Bolsonaro's results, those were surprising. So because we were expecting him to be a little lower, lower than 40 percent for sure. This was a result of the polling in the in the past months of like g- getting us to believe that maybe Bolsonaro got get 36, 38 percent. So him um, having this this little of a difference between Bolsonaro and Lula is something that surprised a lot of us for sure.
4: Yeah, Ben, I mean, we watched it together, in fact, Um we were, we, I think, already fairly early in the evening, it became clear that the r- result would be more favorable for Bolsonaro. And one of the ways that we were able to tell that that would be the case was that election results that came in for senator, for example, or for Cong- or for um, governors at various, in various different states seemed to be already be more favorable to Bolsonaro-aligned candidates.
6: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'll start off with the good news part, is that in some senses, the Pete led left, managed to recover some of its position from the last election. I mean, uh, frankly speaking, it, I think if the correct statistic is that Lula got something like 20 million more votes than Haddad did in 2018. And it increased, uh, Pate increased its size uh, of its um, uh, caucus in um, the Congress. But at the same time, what we saw is the continued increase of right-wing candidates. But these aren't just center-right candidates. These are far-right candidates that managed to win elections. In some senses, many of the people who are most implicated in the most disastrous aspects of Bolsonaro's government uh, got elected with huge numbers of votes, including the health minister in Rio de Janeiro, including the former environmental minister in Sao Paulo. We've seen something like a recomposition of the right in Brazil. What I mean by this, this is apparent in 2018, we're probably the biggest losers the center-right, again, the center-rights have been cannibalized. and It's now in a zombie form. But instead, you've seen this new far-right consolidation of forces. So Bolsonaro, if he were to win the presidency, now has a much more stable majority in Congress.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, I still yeah. think he will lose. But this what it does mean is that even if he does, you have a sort of stable consolidation of a far-right bloc. This could be in Brazilian politics for a long time, both at the state level, both at the um, congressional level and the central level, and frankly speaking, some of these guys are absolute lunatics.
4: And yeah. The level yeah. of derangement. But we're going to get into some of the some of the lunacy actually um, in this. Though so I think I don't know if we're going to talk about cannibalism or fake priests or uh, or masons because uh, that's been unfortunately some of the headline topics uh, since the first round. So you know already we're about. Effectively, we're one week into the battle for the second round, for the runoff, and the election has been dominated by all these kind of religious themes and very much kind of on the terrain of of what Bolsonaro would like it to be, I think. Now, I just want to set this up because Ben brought in a lot of detail there, which we're going to work through as we go through this. I think it's probably worth setting up what this election kind of is, right? And I think we we would all be agree that it's effectively a, a plebiscite on democracy. That Lula is standing with a very broad front, trying to, and has successfully drawn support from a huge array of the establishment, including many former rivals and enemies, uh, as a sort of you know, democratic bloc against Bolsonarismo. Uh, and maybe what the election results showed, contrary to maybe what some of us hoped, is that Bolsonarismo showed itself to be electorally stronger than than maybe expected um how how would you classify bolsonarismo what would you what percentage of the population would you say that uh bolsonarismo has a hold on you know that that are are part of that block Sabrina
5: well it's important to differentiate that uh this vote for bolsonaro is not necessarily a bolsonarista vote there's a very strong anti petista vote, so people who voted for bolsonaro because they understand Lula and the PT to be the worst option of all. Um, There's been um, some analysis that shows that people might have migrated directly to Bolsonaro in the first round because they were afraid of Lula winning right away in the first round. So those would be people that wouldn't be hardcore Bolsonaristas or they don't support everything that Bolsonaro do. But this strong uh, sentiment against the left, against the PT and against Lula in Brazil, that's been uh, one of the big... Uh, strengths as well of the Bolsonarista movement, right? Trying to work that on people. So even if people are not far-right, even if people are not super conservative, they can still use that card if they want to get votes. And I think they were quite successful with this. Uh, we know that also because the alternative around Simone Tebbich and Cyril Gomes, uh, we expected them to have more votes in the first round. So we have this evaluation that some of these voters moved straight into into Bolsonaro. But obviously, there is a hardcore Bolsonarista base. It's quite active. It's working really hard right now. In the second round, not only just spreading fake news, but trying to get people into this panic mode that if Lula comes back, it's going to be the worst option out of all. And uh, we know that those are the people that actually approve of the Bolsonaro government. Not that they uh, they believe up absolutely everything that comes out of Bolsonaro's mouth, for example, but they have a tendency to just... Um, Treat it with a grain of salt. Oh, this is how he is. It's fine. But we're better off with him than with the other ones.
4: Yeah, seriously, not, but not literally, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's a really important point you make, that this election and the way that I had understood it look, going into the first round is that it's a pro or anti-Bolsonaro vote. And by implication, pro or anti-democracy, or at least um, whether, you know, Brazil's kind of current, uh, democratic arrangements, such as they are, should be preserved and maintained, or whether, uh, basically should give Bolsonaro what might be kind of free reign in a second, um, in a second term. Um, but what's interesting is, is as you say, Sabrina, is that it proved a little bit differently. Polls seem to suggest that the anti Lula vote was stronger than the anti Bolsonaro vote, that people who voted a small majority of those who voted for Lula were voting in favor of him or his program uh, against Bolsonaro. So I think it might be worth talking now as a way of kind of ticking off the the sort of headline points before going a little bit deeper, uh, looking at what a Lula government actually is proposing, what people are voting for, because as things stand, just to give uh, listeners and viewers a sense of where we are. So the first round, uh, Lula won 48 to 43 percent polls. And we know that they uh, can prove, be proved wrong as they indeed were in the first round. But, you know, if you want to believe them, the polls say Lula leads by route four to eight points. So, you know, maybe may be set to win maybe 53 to 47. I'm personally not um, holding my breath and uh, relying on those figures because I think it might be much tighter than that. Um, but we can come on to the implications of what that might be. But let's assume for the moment that Lula wins. What kind of Congress will he be dealing with, Ben? Well,
6: first of all, we have to understand the type of coalition that he's coming into government with, which is in some ways a little bit similar but broader than this one he won in 2002. So for those who don't understand Brazilian political system, Brazil's political system, it's basically impossible to get a majority in Congress, which means you have to eke out a coalition with a number of different forces, including effectively rental parties who exist only to trade uh, their vote for pork. Now, what happened? Lula selected uh, actually somebody he ran an election against, Geraldo Alckmin, as his vice presidential candidate who left the traditional party, the center right, uh, the PSDB, the Social Democratic Party, which has effectively collapsed. And he's also included a number of other people who would associate with the center, the center right in his coalition. And part of that's been, he's been very open about signaling this is not a left wing program in the traditional sense of not being, uh, and this is also in 2002, not being making very many radical proposals. I think most of the rhetoric has been centered on defending democracy, trying to protect Brazil's institutions, the disasters of Bolsonaro's government, which I mean, in many res- respects, I think that's somewhat the right strategy in, set, in certain um, aspects. But at the same time, now you're going to have an, a very aggressive right-wing Congress, which, again, he would have had anyway, but it's even more, I would say, hard Bolsonarista aligned in that there's sort of been a recomposition of the political class between traditionally the parties we call the central, the big center, the sort of traditional authoritarian, uh, physiological, as they say, trading their support for uh, um in Brazil with this new influx of uh, younger right-wing uh, sort of media influencers ex cops pastors and such along with these sort of traditional more corporatist uh, sort of feudal land owning elements what that means is that this aspect has been propped up not only by the bolsonaro government which did something called the de segredo which effectively gave a huge unheralded amount of money to these sort of candidates in these parties. That uh, really, I mean, should go one of the biggest corruption scandals in Brazil, which you know you had like no oversight of how much money was being given. I think it was a tune of like 40 billion reais, uh, or something around there, and uh, as well as uh, an effective. Uh, the other sort of um, elephant in the room is the military. Now, the military, as many of those people who have been watching what's happening in Brazil know, has been at the center of the Bolsonaro government, it's led its environmental response, its response to COVID, and uh, many of its offices are in the government, and Bolsonaro's running mate is another general. Now, this means that the military, which already cemented Bolsonaro in power, even if they deny uh, to be hard, Bolsonaro and saying to the adults in the room, are not going to go away. They're in politics, and that negotiating prospect with them means that deals will have to be made if uh, Lula is to have any sort of stability in governing and now it's an unfortunate reality, but, uh, it's hard to imagine a very ambitious program being launched under these conditions. I mean, frankly speaking, if Lula can survive a term and protect Brazil's democratic institutions from the decay, restore some state capacity, stop some of the devastation going on, sort of widespread mafiaization of large parts of Brazil, that itself will be a, a huge success for me at the end sort of my low expectation model.
4: Yeah, no, and Sabrina, I mean, it's not just the a factors external to Lula. And Lula's future administration, which would stop him from pursuing a more radical program that he would hypothetically want. It's important to underline, as Ben said, that um, at least in in contrast to how a lot of the international left sees Lula, he's always been a much more moderate figure um, than than is often understood. Um, both in terms of his instinct to conciliate, to find deals, to negotiate, rather than to you know, strong-headedly pursue, uh, you know, and single-mindedly pursue his program. Um, but also just because of the the factors that allowed himself to be elected have always been to bring in fairly centrist, neoliberal uh, finance minister, for example. So, and this time around, it's kind of even going further down that line, isn't it? It's an even more conservative um, coalition that he's assembled um to put in those conservative in, in in relative terms. Um you know effectively a centrist coalition that he's has that he has assembled. So he's gonna owe a lot to a lot of people. So who are some of these people that he's gonna owe something to?
5: Yes um the big conflict here is that if you look into the program itself word by word, there's some quite radical elements there. Uh things that have improved from past years of PT governments and this is the result of uh, the makeup of the original part of the coalition behind Lula. So PSOL is involved. There's a, um, there are people from like the left of the Workers' Party. And even the presence of the PSB there with, uh, with Alckmin as, as his VP, so like a right-wing VP, didn't seem to um, create so much of a problem for some of the elements connected to food sovereignty, uh, elements connected to agroecology, uh, or uh, a plan for public education in Brazil. These are good in the program. But the problem is that um, the closer that we are to having to elect Lula, so first round and second round, uh, the bigger this broad front gets and more people start uh, pouring in. And then you get the phenomenon that we already know with Lula, that's the letter to, letter to someone. So it's like it's the letter to every business. It's the letter to the evangelicals. So this is already happening. What are the compromises that Lula is willing to offer to these particular groups in order to get their support um, for for getting elected in the second round. It, it, this is always a, a little bit of a challenge because we never know how much of that, like the content in those letters, they actually move the votes. So when the the first time when Lula got elected back in 2002 and there was a, the letter to the Brazilian people, that in fact was the letter to the banks. It was a, a letter of like financial support Uh, in general the idea was that well they're not going to meddle anymore because you know they know that we're not going to default on the debt that we are going to be fiscally responsible and things like that but how much of that translates into people voting because yes Lula wrote the letter this is quite interesting Uh, what we know right now in terms of what's coming up in a letter to the evangelicals Um, Now it's a little different because the moral tone of these elections with the moral panic that's used by Bolsonaro and his supporters and this idea that, well, the communists are coming and they're going to make everyone get abortions and things like that, that translates into some of um, these discussions around moral values and the values of the family. So one of the things that seems to be part of the letter that Lula is going to release in those terms is that we're not going to meddle into things that hurt the values of the family. And this is for us, obviously, a setback. But we also know that, for example, abortion rights is not something that's up for the, to the president. <laughs> it's up to Congress. And we already elected mm. quite a, a conservative Congress. So in reality, it doesn't really change that much in terms of the Lula, LULA's program. But it is a little bit dis- disheartening because we always get to this point that he might come in, is already a broad front, is already moderate, but the closer that we get to things, we know that he's compromising with them and not with us. So, like the people who are in the streets, they are distributing pamphlets and they are, you know, really, really engaging, trying to get those two million votes that Lula needs for the second round. It's not Lula making those promises to us. We just need to trust what's already in the program. Right now, he's making compromises with people that sometimes are like are our enemies. <laughs> so yeah, it is yeah. a it's always a complicated moment to to be Brazilian on the left when we get to the elections and we need to deal with the amount of contradictions there that, that are set in place.
4: Yeah, I mean I, I mean in my point of view it seems legitimate in this election because of the threat that Bolsonaro poses, um Above all, to democracy, and I think it is entirely realistic to imagine that should Bolsonaro win a second term, that it would follow more or less the recipe that Erdogan has followed in Turkey or Orbán has followed in in Hungary, um, where a second dem- a second democratic victory, and it's important to underline that it is a democratic victory uh, despite everything, uh, that that provides the basis for then a, a further strangulation of democracy usually done through, quote unquote, constitutional means. Um, it's not tanks on the streets, but um, it is a slow kind of strangling of democracy. And the other kind of negative uh, effect, which Bolsonaro, uh, which Bolsonaro, which Ben has already mentioned about Bolsonaro, um, in terms of uh, basically sh- shredding the state, um, killing Brazilian state capacity, both in terms of development as well as well as environmental protection, and so on and so forth. Um, but I think... Uh, so, you know, to a certain extent, the pursuing of this broad front strategy that Lula has um, gone about doing ever since he kind of returned to the race of basically stitching up alliances all across the the political spectrum, indeed, even getting support of Michel Temer, who uh, viewers may remember, was the uh, coup monger, effectively, he was Juma Husef's. Uh, Vice president, when she was impeached, he took power and then implemented uh, the road, the bridge to the future, which was an incredibly like neoliberal um, reform program of privatizations, uh, cap on federal uh, constitutional cap on spending and so forth. Um, So even he's on board. Right. Um, And I think this is important in terms of characterizing the nature of the debate in the second round, as it's already been. I mean, you know, we've only had a week of it, but it's already pretty clear that Lula is you know basically making overtures continually to sections of the establishment um trying to win over uh for example uh, by promising to have or potentially i think to have you know a kind of neoliberal finance minister and so on um and Bolsonaro meanwhile is just signaling to his base as he always does he's not interested really in moderating or speaking to a wider public so how would we characterize and how how successful do we think each strategy is going to be?
6: I think, first of all, we have to talk about a few things. One is what you saw in the run-up to the elections with this polling that really put Bolsonaro very far behind is the sort of fleeing from the camp of more opportunistic elements of the Bolsonaro coalition. So there was talk of people opening up fact channels to Lula and the Workers' Party. There was some fleeing of uh, some significant figures. But because the results proved much stronger than expected within what I called an article the margin of golpismo, which means in the margin of coup possibility, as Bolsonaro will certainly, if he doesn't win, or even if he wins, will call the legitimacy of elections as he already has into question, um, means that you've seen people scurrying back, as, even if Bolsonaro maintains his same position. Because the reason people were leaving Bolsonaro was not really because of ideology, it was just about survival. It's about making deals. It's opportunistic. Now, the question is, is how successful, in two respects, the mobilization of Lula's strategy would be in getting third party voters to vote uh, for um, uh, the Workers' Party in the second round, or people who left their vote blank and didn't vote in the first round. Now, uh, the question is I think partially, part of me thinks that because the polls had them so widely apart. Those who sort of voted in the first round saying they didn't want to give Lula a blank check might decide to cast their vote for Bolsonaro, I mean, against Bolsonaro. So that means thinks that that is part of the strategy. Secondly, I do think in general, uh, significant portions of the Brazilian ruling class have abandoned Bolsonaro, and that was, he hasn't proved very good at governing certain aspects. But it's still up there. It's a fight. This is going to be a fight to the last second. I mean, this is a very serious situation we have here. And we can expect drama. We can expect more coup threats. We can expect uh, mafia elements getting involved. We can expect potentially more political violence. And I mean, there's a real difference in tone between us, Lula and a Bolsonaro. Rally. I'll give you an example. I think on the same day, it was uh, um, this weekend, there was a rally in Belo Horizonte, which is one of the biggest cities in Brazil, the capital and biggest city, Minas Gerais, which is the second most populous state in the country, and the most important victory for Lula the last election which he managed to flip which had gone for Bolsonaro in the last election um, you know you have this sort of overwhelming mass of uh, workers different social movements you know the traditional left wing base there and you know Lula will speak to them he will pull up the history of being in power there will be sort of a broad coalition of speakers and then Bolsonaro was in Belém which is sort of the entrance to the Amazon River in the north which you know is a sort of water ski boat parade something like Trump's boat rallies that goes up the river And it's all like flash, it's symbol, it's, you know, the sort of really, it's not interested in engaging undecided people, it's interested in demonstrating sort of aesthetic. And, you know, it's really uh, kind of part of the problem with being on the left is that you have to convince people over, and in some respects being on the right, you can just maintain the status quo. And in some respects that uh, considering how much of the Brazilian establishment is behind Bolsonaro still, particularly in the Congress, after all the money that was spent there, it's a real challenge because, you know, you, you venture into the territory of fighting fire with fire and launching smear. Well, you know, most of the things that they say about are actually true. I mean, you can't really find much. There's not much need to make up about him. But against on that terrain, do you do it on a programmatic turn? But the fact is, and I think, um, which is really disturbing to some of us, is that if this was a uh, plebiscite on democracy, there's a lot of people who don't really care
4: who are voting against
6: it and actually want it to end.
4: Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's an element to which, you know, what has democracy done for me, right? Um, That Brazilian democracy, such as it is, is pretty impermeable to popular interest being channeled upwards. Uh, The whole structure of Congress and the way the presidency works with relation to Congress means that a lot of things that uh, a president might be elected on will never actually get done because you have to do so many sorts of deals across Congress, uh, across an incredibly fragmented Congress with 30 parties in there. Now that number has been reduced, but even so we're talking about something like 18 parties in Congress, right? So it's it's not like um, even a European multi-party democracy if you're talking, you know, you want to compare to, you know, if you're familiar with Holland or something, which is really fragmented, the Netherlands. And even so, you know, Brazil is even more so. So it makes it very difficult. What I wanted to, t- I want to talk a little bit about the people effectively, right? Because we've, we've already talked about Bolsonaro playing to his base and we should maybe spell out who those people are socially, what backgrounds they come from. Um, I think we can already highlight, for example, that they are la- the evangelicals are very strong supporters of Bolsonaro. It would it's the only social group uh, amongst which Bolsonaro would would have won an absolute majority. Even, um, but there's some elements of class that we should spell out as well. Um, you know, Bolsonaro is. Uh, I mean, just a little bit of clarification here. I guess it's worth doing this at this point. That if, in Brazil, for polling, exit polling, and surveys, they uh, class people's income according to the number of minimum wages or minimum wage equivalents that people earn so the minimum wage is about a thousand reais which is about two hundred dollars a month and um both lula wins strongly amongst those winning uh, earning one to two minimum wages a month um but those earning between two and five and five and ten uh, are strongly pro-Bolsonaro. But these aren't necessarily the we- wealthy people. If you're earning seven um, times the minimum wage, you're definitely middle class, but you're not particularly wealthy. And it's certainly if you calculate that into dollars, it it, it isn't. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. I just wanted to make one other point, because um, it struck me when Ben was talking about, you know, Bolsonaro um, playing to his base. And Lula then sort of talking to the left, but also ma- basically making overtures continually to different establishment forces to try to get them behind his election. Is that no one's really making a play for the working class as a whole um, in in those specific terms, right?
5: What's interesting here in the in this makeup is that, for example, once you go over the the five five levels of minimum wage here and that people are going to go with Bolsonaro. There's also levels of rejection in terms of uh, people who would vote for Bolsonaro, but they wouldn't if they had another option that they found um, a little bit more uh, feasible or appealing. And for example, there you find a gender difference. So like women, even women of like a middle class and upper middle class, they're more likely to switch their vote from Bolsonaro. They're more likely... So like there, there's a, we already got data. We had like a, at least three big um, um, polls throughout the, the these past months that showed this, like that this difference of gender in the in the lower classes in and the upper classes. But there's some interesting things here too. Like Bolsonaro did quite well in areas where you have a high levels of deforestation. So uh, areas where in the country you have a lot of pressure in terms of the agribusiness. Frontier, and we know that that's connected to conservatism. Yes, because this is part of um, the culture in those areas. But it's also connected to the interests of those employers. We are having cases right now, like so. There's been uh, 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 journalist investigations the past weeks showing the level of harassment by employers towards their employees, saying that well, if Bolsonaro wins, you're going to get a bonus. Or if Bolsonaro loses, we're going to have to lay you off. Uh, so there's pressure on the working class coming from that as well. So uh, there is a, now a movement to get people to denounce this, to take this to to the... Um, to the courts, but obviously in Brazil we are already uh, living under Bolsonaro. We don't have proper uh, a proper justice outlet in the system to deal with this type of uh, this type of um, harassment and things there that, that go against workers' rights. This is already one of the issues that we're dealing with uh, here right now. But in terms of the the um, the evangelicals, and I think this is important. Like if Bolsonaro wins for sure. Um, above five minimum wage, minimum wage levels, and also with evangelicals, uh, there's also a tendency that we have seen for uh, women who are evangelical to also switch their votes. What happens is that they feel a lot of pressure from uh, their husbands, from their pastors, so the leaders in the region, and also tend to properly decide their vote later on, so closer to to the election day. So the last 48 hours, the last 24 hours this is important. So when you look into these women who are evangelical and you look into the class situation and you find that a lot of them are living in the periphery in, in the cities and a lot of them are really working class in precarious situations, there are class class-based approaches that can be used here. And a lot of the things connected to the care economy, care democracy coming from the Lula campaign, they are showing some positive effects. So talking about food in the schools, opening up schools, opening up daycare, making sure that even people, like one of the the research pieces that we read, uh, even showed that uh, giving uh, people free Wi-Fi in particular parts of the country is important to these women because then they can check up on their sons they can check up on their family and say okay so you when are you coming home so there are issues connected to access and class that are important for us to analyze so we don't fall under this impression that like the conservative wave is all the same and all of the evangelicals are the yeah. same and all the conservative voters are the same and they're naturally going with Bolsonaro. Um, this is something that I f- uh, find that the left is finally picking up upon right now, but we're surely quite behind on this.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the kind of flip side to that is precisely um, at a kind of discursive level, um, the Lula campaign fighting this election a little bit on that terrain. So it's one thing to say, you know, no, we're not going to close down the churches, um, but another to be pointing out that Lula, you know, that Bolsonaro has association with masons and all this kind of um, mudslinging that kind of goes on. um, Which, you know, to win this election, you know, fine, but it might be storing up problems for the future because if. Um, Brazilian politics is to be fought along those terms of who you're associated with, whether the devil is on your side or the other guy's side. Um, that's not uh, a good ground for any sort of progressive politics in the future. Um, maybe we should turn a little bit also to um what Bolsonaro's government has done without getting into the usual um, stuff that I think you get a lot um, in coverage abroad, that, oh, Bolsonaro is just going to burn down the Amazon, Bolsonaro is killing everyone, Bolsonaro, blah, blah, blah. But to try to get to grips a little bit with what Bolsonaroismo has actually been in power um, and why, indeed, it might maintain itself in power. Um, so um, maybe, Ben, if you I don't know if you want to talk a, a bit about this, but um, I think like one important element is, precise, is the way that he's basically turned on the fiscal taps, um, opened the fiscal taps entirely for a lot of spending, including social spending, but mainly a lot of pork barrel spending to his allies and how that's um, progressed, I guess, over his period in office, because it's important to remember that he came in supposedly as this anti-corruption warrior who promised that he wasn't going to do any deals in Congress. And then predictably enough, ended up doing exactly that within a year in power. Well, I mean, I'll just give you an example of
6: anti-corruption politics in its current state today. Because one of the things Bolsonaro has effectively done is dismantle the accountability mechanisms introduced previously by Workers' Party governments, including closing down the infamous car wash Lava Jato investigation. And now we find out, of course, uh, the leaders, Sergio Moro, the judge at the prison Lula, supporting Bolsonaro, as is Dalton Danil, the you know, the guy who led the investigative team. So that gives you something to think about. There was a billion page scandal involving a pro-Bolsonaro construction cartel, which was exposed in the news today. There's been a succession of scandals, but somehow, despite the scale of them, including this massive scandals during the response to COVID, um, particularly this, uh, what I think should be the biggest scandal in recent history, this awesome, history level, um, it's not treated on the same level as the scandals during the Bull's presidency. Now, in part because anti corruption uh, can mean whatever you want it to mean, but in part because what really is happening under Bolsonaro is, uh, I would describe it as three things. I mean, I'm sort sure of choosing this. One is the sort of not undoing only of uh, the legacy of the Workers' Party in power, but effectively the project to create a centralized Brazilian state with some capacity and some social agenda introduced after 1930. Uh, which has been sort of continued, continued, and then Temer broke with it and Bolsonaro went even harder. So as you mentioned before, workers' rights. One of the first things that Bolsonaro actually didn't have was uh, get rid of the Ministry of Labour and hand it over to the Ministry of Finance under their responsibilities, which just gives you an idea of how you can, in terms of bureaucratic mechanisms. Another thing is what we've seen a lot is a handing over what were previously public programs, programs to create an effective state, like public education, to private interest, not only with a conservative agenda in terms of the content, but profits. So you have these for-profit schooling being handed over uh, in sections of a public schooling agenda with links to the government, but also links to sort of hard-right, conspiracist, evangelical uh, social agenda. So we have this process of private interest taking over the states, um, which were previously regulatory mechanisms. Which we see consistently, we've also seen the return of the military, which is the, um, third thing I'd point out. But in effect, what we've had is the amount of money that Bolsonaro has turned on, which is through increasing social spending in the last elections, letting early payments going to, for social programs during the second round, uh, and the amount of pork spent is a lot of the recomposition, as I pointed towards previously, of the Centrino, the, you know, Brazilian right-wing establishment in Congress. Now, what does that mean? Bolsonarismo is now well-established institutionally, even if it's out of power. It also means, in some respects, if you want to think of Bolsonarismo, I was having a conversation with a friend of ours, uh, Rodrigo Nunes, who's a very insightful philosopher and has written some very good stuff on Bolsonaro about the sort of material interest of Bolsonarismo. He pointed out something in terms of the logic of class formation, which is, for certain elements of Brazilian society, putting precariously employed people as sort of uh, delivery drivers for Uber Eats or equivalent services, Uber Eats is actually not banned. but also equivalent services, um, would be interested in getting rid of, sort of health and safety and restrictions because they pose an obstacle to profits. And Bolsonaro is saying get rid of restrictions, arm yourselves, and you know, getting rid of the sort of logic of society or care logic of the state. Now, this is like a deep discussion that I don't want to get too further into. But what I want to point out is, in some effect, what is behind this sort of privatization of the state is the a transformation towards, I mean, really, what in some respects, is a non society in which no one really cares beyond their own individual interests and various private interests govern what would previously be seen under the realm of personal freedom of the state.
4: No, I think that's really important, um, absolutely, in terms of what Bolsonaro kind of effectively Plays on um, amongst the masses, not not just uh, amongst kind of the upper middle class who hate the left and um, voted for him as the anti left candidate, um, is precisely that sense of uh, perhaps a sense of defeat, a lack of hope, or sense of that that the public realm could provide anything really. And as a consequence, Bolsonaro's defense or you know, the way he positions himself as someone who will fight crime. Um, has some sort of appeal insofar as it's, uh, as, as it kind of says, well, at least you're going to kill the bad guys rather than try to keep this kind of show on the road, which isn't providing anything for anyone. Um, I guess in that, in that context, I think I wanted to ask, uh, Sabrina, what she thought, I guess, um, in terms of what, to what extent Bolsonaro sort of has a certain popular appeal, um, And, you know, what the basis, what the nature of that actually is, you know, even picking on what what Ben said in terms of um, even just private entrepreneurship, because of course, um, Brazil, you know, has a workforce which is highly precaritized, 40% informal. Um, and that's a very that's a radically different situation to the models of left-wing politics that I think a lot of us have in our heads, which are drawn from mid-century in developed countries, which is a lot of formalized workers, unions, and so on. And then you think, okay, we don't have that so much now, but let's try to go back to that. And in fact the context in Brazil is so radically different to that. And Brazil doesn't even Really have the entire history of of kind of Fordist organization that you had in um, the most developed countries. You did, but it was brief and on a much smaller scale. So I think it's it, that's a one po- an important thing to maybe discuss. So maybe let's uh, let's have a little chat about that.
5: Yes, I guess this is a really good point, Alex. Because I think there's uh, two things that we can approach here. Uh, one is the low level of, of unionization in Brazil, so it's below twenty percent um so we already have like a quantity issue here whenever we talk about general strike in brazil or like stopping the country like doing like a whole day of work stoppage what happens is that because we have unions in strategic places, sometimes we get a work stoppage, but it's really hard to get a general strike because unionization is so low. Beyond that, um, it doesn't mean that those are left-wing unions. <laughs> so we have a whole issue in Brazil with right-wing unions. Unions are working directly with the employer. So like um, we talk a lot of like the term in Brazil about pelegaging, so like working for the employer, with the employer. And this is already one of the issues here because it gets into economism, right? So they're unionized, but the point is to get, you know, a, a pay raise, some benefits, and there's no actual political work uh, involved in the process. You remove that from the equation, then you look into the informal labor force and you get into a lot of the phenomenon that's been treated as like uh uberization. So like this level like precarity around um the delivery economy, the, the driving economy. And if you get into the Uber drivers specific in Brazil or the drivers that are delivering food, so like for uh, iFood, Happy, the big companies that we have over here, uh, we find that the notion around meritocracy and, and entrepreneurship, this is really important for them. So this idea that, well, I can't rely on others so I can make it on my own. There's some flexibility. Uh, in my in my work day so this is important for me i get to do my own route so yes like whenever you talk to an uber driver in brazil they're all going to say shit about uber because like they take big cuts and sometimes we don't know and like the the gas prices increase and then they're still taking big cuts so sometimes i'm, I'm having to work longer hours a day and um, support from uber is not very good there's not a single one that's going to be singing absolute praises that they just love working for Uber, but they tend to say that they like uh, having control over their routes and how many hours they are going to work per day. And this type of flexibility is important. And a lot of them do see themselves as entrepreneurs. So the level of uh, this notion around meritocracy and uh, just having like freedom of opportunity is important for them. They want, they don't want the state, to be super involved in their in their whereabouts and what they're doing, and some of these actually means that they don't want, for example, uh, their role as an Uber driver to have the same level of formal uh, protection uh, with, with with like in the other uh, part of the labor force. What we mean in Brazil is like having carteira assinada, so like being properly proper, uh, properly registered. They don't want to be properly registered with Uber or with iFuji but they might want other benefits so one of the things that we've been trying to approach with this crowd is showing yeah sure you want this level of informality and flexibility but i bet that if you get into an extent you want some support so maybe you want to be part of the welfare system maybe you might even want to retire through the public uh, uh welfare system so there are other ways of approaching this that don't go um Head to head with this part of like the intra- uh, entrepreneurship that's going to be harder to tackle. This is like a longer process of deconstructing this level of, of um, ideology into people's minds. Especially because when we get into the point with Uber drivers, taxi drivers in Brazil, one of the main issues that we have is that they're like just going around every day, working for hours, listening to Jovem Pan, listening to very conservative radio. So radio that's like campaigning for Bolsonaro from the beginning. So we have a media issue here into like how we reach uh, precarious workers in in different places. Because sometimes if we're talking about women who are working as uh, housekeepers, um, they might be listening to the radio too. And then this time it's not Joven Pan, but it's radio that's owned by Edir Macedo from the Universal Church. Uh, so very conservative radio as a well. Massive talking...
4: evangelical church, yeah.
5: Exactly, like like. Uh, so we we need to pay attention that uh, we might be able to establish a certain level of rapport with these workers on their material interests, but they're also being bombarded every single day with very very ideological content coming from the right.
4: Yeah no I think that's really important what you say and I you know on the positive side there have been attempts to organize um del- especially delivery drivers um who you know don't are at a, on a lower rung I guess of, of the of the labor market because they don't own their own car in the way that an Uber driver might do you know they are delivery on a bike, maybe even a rented bike, one of these city bikes that you use, um, or maybe a little motorbike, but, you know, kind of a different different scale of kind of the capital that they have to bring to the market, um, even, you know, even if that's very limited. Um, and there have been attempts to create, you know, to do strikes uh, of delivery drivers. And I think that can be um, something that's very promising. But I, I, you're right in what you point to, that there is it's a central challenge that in an increase, incredibly precarious labour force, of, of which Brazil stands as kind of a, a very strong example, but one which would be familiar to viewers elsewhere in the world as well. Um, these same similar very um, important tendencies. Which is um, how do you respond to that, and how do you respond also to that desire for freedom? Because it's a, for that desire for autonomy, I think, is a very real one. And to simply say, let's go back to the old model. Um, is not a a solution, right? I think that desire for autonomy is a healthy one, Um, but of course...
5: We need to acknowledge that it is a legitimate uh, concern, especially for people who uh, don't fit into a a proper way of, you know, like working nine to five, you know, there are different different, uh, aptitudes here involved and also people who have different family uh, structures. So it's important to have flexibility too. Like a lot of women, they ask for that because of the time of the the work of, uh, uh, like when they get their children, they pick them up from school. It's legitimate. If we just say no, 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 we're just going to fit everyone into this, you know, union model from before, it's also a way of saying that we don't care. We're not listening.
4: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um I just want to make a brief plug if I might. Uh over on uh, my podcast bungacast.com, uh we are doing an ongoing series called Bunga Zone 2022, uh which is an ongoing series looking at various themes on Brazilian politics. We've already covered the role of the military and the possibility of a coup, uh the war of all against all that is Brazilian society, which is very much um on, you know, on along the lines of what we've just been discussing. Uh Ben and I are going to record an episode on the politics of corruption and anti-corruption this week. So if If you liked what he's just said on that and you want to hear more in more depth about that, we'll be covering that. We'll also have stuff on the rise of evangelical Christianity, uh, the nature of populism, and precisely uh, more on this question of precaritization. So if you're interested in that, uh, come check us out. That's uh, at BungaCast everywhere you get your um, podcasts. Now, uh, just to round this out, I wanted to... um, discuss two, I guess, two final points. One is to place this a little bit in a, in a wider Latin American context, what this might mean. Because I think there's always a lot of excitement um, around what might be happening more broadly in South America, the possibility of a pink wave. Um, elsewhere, I think I I said, uh, you know, don't get your hopes up too much. It's going to be even paler than a pink wave. And I called it a salmon wave, because I guess that's a, a color that's a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more pale than pink, and also it's swimming upstream, so I think it's it's very appetite. So anyway, um, the salmon wave. Where will, uh, where would a future Lula government, hopefully, should that come to pass, uh, sit alongside um, Boric in Chile and uh, Petro in in Colombia and so on?
6: Um, I'm going to start outside of that question slightly. Then we're going to hand over Sabrina, who knows this much more intimately than I do. Uh, I'm going to say. The positive side is, uh, if Lula were to be elected, and as I said, successfully preserve the institutions of Brazilian democracy and, you know, show that it shows there's a way back from like the brink, the abyss, you know, for a country like my own, South Africa, that is a sort of inspiring story. I mean, he's doing it under, if this was to happen, of course, and I'm being very speculative, under very difficult conditions. You know, this is a, you know, we, parts of the reason why, for instance, uh, Lula lost badly in Rio, is that you cannot campaign in parts of that state because it's simply dominated by mafia. You know, this is uh, we're talking about again is the interventions of capital, the fact that you can basically run an election ads semi illegally as sort of radio or like job and Ban, well, is the background noise of somebody going through their day. These aren't ideal conditions to mobilize. It. So that's the good news that there would be a sort of a model. Uh, Go back on. And I'll also mention one last thing before uh, we go into the Latin American importance perspective. One other thing, instead of the trend because of this narrative of the left losing its working-class base, becoming a sort of Brahmin left party, that isn't quite what's happened in Brazil. As you pointed out, lower-income voters uh, tended to go for the Workers' Party. And also, I think very importantly, even if uh, the Workers' Party kind of underperformed in the state as a whole, in Sao Paulo, capital, the largest and most developed city in Brazil, uh, Which went almost very for Bolsonaro in 2018. A lot of the traditional working class areas and peripheries were flipped by the pet, pet this election time. I mean that was a pretty significant thing. This is can't just be discounted. And I mean Sabrina would definitely know more. She spoke to some of these campaigns about it. They have been approaching these issues, but there are lessons that are positive from this experience. uh, Even if I, I'm not. I mean, there's a long way to go. uh, three weeks in Brazilian elections is, still feels like infinity.
5: Yeah, and like just picking up first on, on that on what Ben just said, um, we have a tendency to be listing all of the defeats right now. But yes, we we've made progress as well, We're like with more indigenous people getting elected, indigenous women in Congress. Uh, we know that, for example, uh, issues related to ecology, the environmental agenda they're like ranking a little higher. So even though like Salis got, got elected, we also got, got to elect a bunch of uh, people in Congress that have like an agroecological agenda or are talking about defending the Amazon. So uh, we we have this possibility of, of gaining ground here. And some issues related to Latin American integration are actually quite helpful. Uh, we understand that, yes, there's I agree with Alex on this, <laughs> that it is... Um, uh, it is like a softer pink wave in terms of what we saw in the past. And also it's less integrated. And like we, we can see this a lot in terms of like the conflict between like Boric's position and Maduro. So like the, the perspective coming from Chile uh, in, conne- in connection to Venezuela, um, it is like even further. So it is it's not about proximity at all. Whereas you have Petro in Colombia opening up the borders of Venezuela, so uh, having a, a closer approach so far, without Lula, Petro is sort of like operating Colombia as something in between, you know, so like working with Boric and working with Maduro, trying to create a little bit of synergy. But obviously, this is going to be a huge issue. For example, if the dream of a Unasur actually comes through, like a strong Unasur as an alternative to the OAS, um, because even if Lula comes in and Lula has talked about Unasur, uh, this tensions around anti-communism, these tensions around, you know, a different approach to the leftist state, uh, they're still very much present. What we do think Mm. might be quite helpful here is in terms of staving off the far right in other countries so if bolsonaro loses and we do a good cho- job in suppressing some of the bolsonarismo in brazil this is positive for the people who are fighting the far right in chile in argentina in peru in colombia uh, ecuador and whatever because we know that the far right in these countries they are connected they're learning from each other we have um this whole situation for example of like big names of the far right in argentina being very connected to Bolsonaro's sons. Uh, and this is like not even just like doing live streams together. It's actually like sharing practices and how they're going to spread panic and what kind of fake news they're going to employ. Uh, This is important too. And we also do have hopes that uh, with a Lula election, because he does have these different diplomatic sense um, in in terms of South-South cooperation, this might mean other things in terms of like a uh, development approach for the region, uh, what kind of uh, areas we're going to be investing in. So like for people like me who love to talk about like trains and rail, like what does this mean in terms of transportation across our countries over here? And what does this mean in terms of priorities around mining when we're talking about key minerals for the climate transition? Right, so like we do know that it's quite important for Bolivia, Argentina, and Chile, but like Brazil uh, also has a lot to offer in that sense with conversations that are coming from the Lula campaign about the transition of Petrobras into an energy company focused on renewables. So, this uh, is something that can be approached from perspectives of uh, local treaties, um, things like Lula coming in and finally like ratifying the Escaçu agreement to bring protections. Uh, in the region for for people working with the environment, so there is a good perspective. Like Lula coming, Lula coming back, could mean a lot in terms of leadership in the area. Though I think that Petro is already, even though Colombia is quite small, Petro like arrived with a very strong voice already and uh, is helping with that role. But Lula will definitely strengthen that.
6: Um, I just want to finish with one point, Alex. I mean, on a purely narrative quality, a few years ago, Lula was sitting in prison seemingly done for this might be one of the great political comebacks of all time i mean like if he wins again i mean purely leaving office with 80 percent going to prison coming back into office i mean that's really makes would make him one of the most successful politicians of all time yeah and yeah. like i mean uh, regardless of what you think of the actual politics of it i mean I, I think it's pretty clear no one else besides him would be able to do this against this strong force in boston reasonable i mean it's, uh, it's an extraordinary story
4: yeah, I mean, I'm glad actually you raised that because that's actually where I wanted to finish off. Um, I've often thought that, you know, Lula is a remarkable figure, but, um, more on biographical terms, uh, than on political terms. Um, or rather that what he's achieved politically, uh, is remarkable only because so many, uh, other Brazilian politicians are so awful that doing a little bit has, uh, has really stood out. But I think, you know, regardless, this is an election. That So that we might have a future, so that we have a kind of terrain for struggle in the future, um, so that there is still the maintenance of some sort of a democracy. Um, and with that in mind, I think we should look maybe a little bit beyond Lula just to close this off, because ultimately, he's 76 years old. Um, Bolsonaro himself is, how old is he, 70 something or 60 something? I've, I've forgotten how old he is. Um, but but yeah, right. No, and, uh, obviously has his own health issues. So, um, you know, these are obviously not figures who will be around forever, um, or even for a very long time. Indeed, Lula has said he plans only to, um, serve one term and that's it. We'll see if that, you know, how that, how that plays out, of course. Um, but I think looking beyond that, um, what do we, how do we see this playing out? What, what kind of future, uh, does Brazil have? Um, and to frame it more specifically, um, is there a possibility for renewed economic growth in Brazil? Uh, is there the possibility for a kind of uh, an attempt to salvage or rebuild and indeed build a certain social democracy within uh, within the current constraints that they that are operating today?
5: There are some ec- expectations yeah. around a new commodity boom, like something that bolsonaro sort of experienced but didn't quite take take advantage of it. A lot of people uh, say that uh, the big advantage that Lula had, in terms of economic growth is because there was a commodity boom. So he got lucky. Yeah, but you can take advantage of it or not. So this is one of the issues. And it's something that Lula has been trying to signal in terms of how we actually um, connect this and try to reconcile this with things around sustainable development. He's been talking about um, the wealth of biodiversity and the Amazon, like for me coming from an eco-socialist perspective, I get a little worried about what that might mean. Um, But there's a a tendency that always comes with uh, the governments coming from the PT, which is to inject a lot of public money into infrastructure and big public services. So like the expansion of the education, this is going to be quite key. Lula's been talking about um, a full, uh, like a full-time approach to schooling and to daycare, which is going to involve the creation of jobs. Uh, he's really been talking about um, a lot of uh, programs around um, food security, again, because it's one of the main issues, the fact that Brazilian people are going hungry. So that also means injecting uh, money into family agriculture, injecting money into the movements connected to to agroecology, but it also means injecting, injecting money into agribusiness. So these partnerships are uh, still going to be part of it. Though we do expect that uh, Lula might be able to handle these things if he's successful at removing the cap on spending. That's been the big strain, like stranglehold that we've had like since since Tamer since the uh, the government with Tamer and Congress, they put this cap on spending for 20 years and it's one of the reasons that services are so bad right now. It's not just because bolsonaro is awful but also because bolsonaro takes advantage of the fact that he does he, he doesn't have to invest, he doesn't have to spend money so this spending freeze is a huge issue right now and we know if that if Lula really wants to talk about economic growth and a bigger recovery, because like the brazilian economy has somewhat improved in the, the like this year uh, 2022 so employment is not as bad as was um uh, last year and now we're trying to control inflation again we know that a lot of this was connected to the policy around um, fuel prices coming from Petrobras. So like this policy that was implemented even before Bolsonaro, but it's really about uh, helping shareholders make the most out of their profits. And this led uh, gas prices in Brazil to skyrocket in 2022 with really bad effects on the economy in terms of inflation and food prices. So by bringing those prices down, it also helped with food prices and controlling inflation. In fact, this is one of the main concerns around the electorate. So we found that, you know, like over 80% of the people, they're concerned with matters such as fighting crime, fighting corruption, standing up for democracy, um, standing up for the environment, and also economic issues around unemployment and inflation. So this is something that Lula might be willing to tackle, though we know... As always, um, the neoliberal pressure is on. Uh, Lula is meeting with Henrique Meirelles, who's one of the biggest advocates for neoliberal politics in Brazil. Uh, And now I think we might go back, like if Lula is successful in the election, we might go back into trying to understand this mix between a neoliberal approach to the economy, but also strong developmentalism in terms of a national project that also comes with uh, worker part, workers' party investment.
4: Very good, yeah, and that will uh, require uh, its own struggle, which one which will be rather different to the one that uh, has been that Bolsonaro has kind of presented us with. Um, anyway, thank you uh, very much, Ben Sabrina. Um, check out Ben Fogel's work. Sabina Fernandes' work and my own uh, on Jacobin and elsewhere. And Jacobin will be doing plenty more Brazilian election coverage over the coming weeks. Catch you later.